Welcome to A Life in Film. Our guest today is a man of many talents. From humble beginnings at the new criminal indie theatre group, he met John Cusack. The two went on to write classics Gross Point Blank and High Fidelity. He's also produced projects such as Entourage and the Tom Cruise actioner Night and Day. As a director, he's gone from strength to strength, with Netflix series Santa Clarita Diet starring Drew Barrymore and Timmy Oliphant, and the hugely successful Cobra Kai, but you may know him best with the comedy classics Accepted, starring Justin Long and Jonah Hill, and The Hot Tub Time Machine, starring John Cusack. Our guest today is director Steve Pink. So, Steve, um, let's talk about your new film, The Wheel. How did this project, how did this come to your door? Yeah, so um, I, I was, um, I shoot a lot of commercials and this young uh, producer uh, named Joss Jason and his partner, Molly uh, Galula, um, brought the script to me. Uh, Josh um, and I work in the commercial company together and we had a particularly difficult shoot. And in that difficult shoot, um, you know, because I'm not a very hierarchical person, I was like, okay, PA, you need to like, did you go to film school? Because this is a difficult shoot. You have to stop being a PA and start being a filmmaker with me if we're going to get through this. Because they they kind of left, you know, it's just one of those circumstances where the only people actually handling this this particular commercial work was me and him. Like the crew got really small. It was during COVID. And so, you know, we got to kind of work together in a collaborative way just on that little commercial. And then you know, we got to talking and then a few weeks later, he brought me the script. And of course, the joke always is that, you know, I was like, did you see my IM? Did you happen to look my IMDb up before you, you know, sent me this material? Um, you know, because it's just not something people think of me as doing. And um, but I love the script and I love the opportunity for me. It was a challenge and an opportunity, obviously, to do a drama. No one is handing me, you know, the, none of the studios are handing me a drama. If I wanted to kind of explore that, you know explore um making a film in that genre and 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 seeing what that was like this was going to be my opportunity to do it it was during covid and it was going to be a tiny little micro indie so all of that kind of added up and the script was kind of brilliant and that all added up to me really wanting to do it and then josh and maui put the the you know the way less than you can way less than the crafty budget for avengers was the film i would say i would say half the crafty budget on a just for the day like half a day's crafty budget is what we made for Avengers, what we made the film for. And, um, and then, you know, the cast came along, you know, when Amber Midlander, when I met her, um, we, you know, we just met on a zoom and I, and she, I found her to be, you know, um, obviously the perfect actor for the role, but also just an extraordinary person um, and willing to take on the challenge that the role presented. Um, and so then, you know, along with Taylor Bray, um, and then we actually had to get Nelson and Bethany Ann Lynn. We actually cast them um, as well to kind of come and join us for nothing during COVID to do this little movie up in um, up in the Angeles Forest in 18 days. And so we kind of put together this little family and um, and then went up and made the film. I had no expectations about what it would be just because to try and execute the script and under those circumstances um was just going to be a challenge on a good day and so I kind of had a you know philosophical point of view about it I was like well let's just see as a bunch of creative artists what we can create and then maybe it'll be something you know um and that's how it all started and and that's how it happened 
Wow, 18 days. That is that is insane. I mean, for the audience as well, that I mean <clears throat> the films usually take I mean, three, four, five, like 10 times as long as that. And and how, how was the, I mean, that sounds like it was a pretty hectic budget. Was it long days, six days a week or? Well, no, I mean, we ended I'm not, you know, I'm not sure whether we should, I think we shot five and then six days. I think they alternated. I don't actually remember, but, you know, because we were such a small crew, like, you know, Jasper uh, was our key grip or was our, was our gaffer. And, and this guy, Tom Rehnquist was our key grip. Like those two guys were the whole department's. This young woman, Brianna, and, and Jemmy was the entire production design department. We had no crack. We had, I think, one or two lights, but the rest were practical and we shot for a bit with available light. So when you're that small, you can only shoot what you can shoot in a day, you know. And so we were always just kind of, we would leave our, we were up at the summer camp, um, which had been closed because of COVID. And we would all kind of emerge from our cabins and kind of sort out how and what we were going to shoot that day. And then we would kind of, tr- you know, kind of walk over as a little troop to the place we were going to shoot. And we would just kind of start to shoot with the actors. And so, you know, uh, the days were extremely difficult, but I wouldn't say necessarily long because you could only do what you could do in a single day. Right. So we would, you know, cause sometimes there'd be thunderstorms, you know, uh, believe it or not, I didn't know there were thunderstorms in the Angeles Forest during summer in the Los Angeles area. I had no idea, like, because it doesn't rain down in the flats. So, you know, these lightning storms that took place in the mountains would just shut us down for three or four hours, sometimes a day. So, um, and then there were forest fires as well, uh, which, you know, almost shut down another entire day. Um, and so, you know, it was a really, it, it was really, um, it was kind of an unconventional schedule where we just would kind of emerge and then shoot and then go back home, go back to our little cabins and then emerge and shoot. Um, and, you know, um, and that was the process. So um, they all felt really, really long, but they also were really super contained. Wow, that is, yeah, it sounds like you were against the elements and also during COVID as well. So like all of that to compete with were you doing daily testing and all those sort of things wearing masks and when we first went up to the cabins we, we all actually went into our cabins for five days like we didn't see each other for five days we walked around like ghosts in this little summer camp waving from afar because we all had to quarantine as in the first six months of covid so we quarantined and then we had a, a medical nurse up there excuse me and we tested every single day so i never saw anyone without a mask on unless um well, first of all, there are many uh, of the 20 people, I guess, well, we saw many of them at the, at the Toronto Film Festival. So I actually got to see their faces. And I guess I would see their faces occasionally. But for the most part, um, I didn't see anyone's faces the whole time, except for the actors. And that was only when we were shooting. Um, made rehearsal tough at first, um, because we were literally rehearsing in chairs in a parking lot, you know, in a giant circle that was probably 50 feet in diameter. And so... I actually had a bit of a panic attack because we would read through scenes and I would be like, oh, I, I, I don't think this movie's going to work. There's like no emotionality. There's no connection between anyone. And then I don't, it was like a disconnect as I was walking back to my cabin and it, it suddenly dawned on me. It's like, well, they were sitting in chairs 30 feet apart with masks on. So it's going to be okay. Like there, we will be able to create an emotional, like a, a convincing emotional reality and dynamic between these characters, you know, when they can actually have proximity to each other and not be wearing masks. <laughs> but, you know, so it was, it was pretty surreal um, and very, and very cool. 
You touched on it briefly before. Um, I mean, this is a very different film for you. It's a drama. And how was that transition sort of going and doing something that was going to be obviously very stripped back, low budget and a drama? And and, I mean, guess a few characters as well. It's there's not a huge cast in this. Was it quite nice to go back to basics and kind of have something that was quite simple? And and, um, I guess you haven't got the producers breathing down your neck when you're doing this one. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's a totally different thing, you know, um, than making a studio movie for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, Bella Gonzalez, who's this amazing young um, DP, she and I talked a lot about how to create uh, the, yeah, you know, the tone of the film, how, how we wanted to tell the story with camera. Um, and it was very, very different than when you're shooting a comedy. Um, and so we just kind of ginned up different kind of theories about how to capture the emotional perspective of every character in any given in every situation and that was very very different than obviously shooting a comedy where you're you know like comedy so much of so much of comedy is about rhythm for me anyway so like creating a rhythm on the day that you know where the characters are you know being absurd or funny and heightened circumstances and then you kind of try and create a rhythm and then out of that rhythm um becomes the absurdity and then that, you know, generally, if you're lucky, you know, evokes laughter. Um, and so then when you're cutting the film, it's the same thing. You're trying to create, you're trying to generate that momentum, which then, you know, breaks laughter into this, you know, into the room. So, um, you know, with this, um, you know, we, I was, I was trying to capture a lot of um, the interior lives of people and, and trying to capture, you um, you know, as much what they weren't saying as what they were. And it was a, it was a challenge for me. Um, you know, sometimes, um, I, like, for instance, I shot a whole scene. There's a little scene um, where they stop off at this little, you know, um, this little, you know, store to buy some things. And, um, you know, the actor, your tailor comes out. Um, Walker comes out and he sees, you know, Amber or her character's name is Albie on the phone and he doesn't know who she's talking to. And there's a lot of tension and he's brought her a couple of things. He's bought her some things. And then they sit in the car and he wants to bring it up. Like, who are you talking to? And there's that, you know, kind of tension uh, and awkwardness around, um, you know, who she was talking to on the phone and it's making him, you know, obviously really self-conscious. And I shot the scene pretty much like you would shoot a scene. I blocked it. I shot coverage, you know, of both of them. I shot a wide, I shot some tight shots. I shot, you know, the master. And then I realized after about 45 minutes, because we were working quickly that I'd shot the, the, the scene entirely wrong. Like I was like, this is like, there's nothing about this scene that I've just shot correctly. Um, after shooting, because my habitually, I was like, oh, well, this is how you capture a scene and you get the coverage. And um, I realized I just, I had missed the scene entirely. And I realized in that moment that the only thing that's important is checking in with Amber's character, Albie, in that moment and feeling that, you know, that turmoil that she's experiencing while as they drive up into the forest, um, you know, because she's essentially agreed reluctantly to try and work out um, their marriage, try to solve, try to solve the problems of their marriage by going up for a weekend and seeing if they can, you know, resolve their differences and remain married. And so I just was like, no, I think the whole scene's really actually checking in with Albie to just see how she's managing this moment. And so then I, I did the shot that's in the, in the, in the, in the movie, right. In currently where I just stay on her 
And then you just kind of hear, you know, all the questions and all of his insecure, all of Taylor or um, Walker's insecurities happening kind of in the background off camera. And it's really just about her. And that's, but that was, I think maybe our second day of shooting or third. And that's when I realized that I really only need to shoot the emotional perspective of the characters at any given moment. And I never really ever had to cover the scene in a traditional way. And so that was very new for me, um, having been trained to like cover scenes traditionally, especially in comedy, you need the coverage because you need, you know, in editorial, to, you need the cuts because it's the cuts, it's the angle changes and cuts that make it fun, that, that, that give you the opportunity to make things funny. Yeah, that, that scene, that, well, that shot of, of her in the car really stood out to me. And I, 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 I like the fact that you, that was like pre-planned. It wasn't like you shot everything and then that's what came to you in the edit. You actually had, once you did it, you were like, that's exactly what it's going to be. You're kind of like editing it in your head as you go along. Yeah, I had to say to the producers, uh, these, you know, and they're great, but I did have to say to them, who are counting on me, you know, as a director with a lot of experience to put these scenes away quickly, I had to go to them and say, hey, Josh, Molly, you know, uh, I know we only have about 20 more minutes before we have to leave this set, but um, I shot this scene entirely wrong. Like, I need to get with Bella and 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 we need to talk about how I think this, what the story I'm telling is, because I just... I just shot it wrong. <laughs> and then, so then I went and talked with Bella and we, and then with, of course, the producers and, and, and because I re I realized that there was a moment I wanted to capture. It was pretty easy to capture that, but it did make me feel like, you know, well, you know, your director isn't, you know, is not as infallible as you might've thought going into this thing. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, and so then, yeah, so that became the guide for how I approached the rest of the movie. I have to say, um, I don't know what it says about me and my relationship, but there was a lot of moments in this film that felt very real. Like the the, the kind of the the petty arguments, the kind of nitpicking at each other, and the like. I mean, the first se sequence, I was like watching it with my girlfriend, and we were kind of we were laughing at what they were arguing about, and I was like straight away that kind of puts across like this is well written, and this is something that um, you know if it speaks to you that dialogue I mean obviously you're a writer you're a director as well you produce as well but with the dialogue and with the way this was written did you obviously because you've written a lot of things in the past as well did you ever want to get kind of stuck into the writing side of this or was it already fully formed yeah well Trent uh the writer and I were really collaborative throughout um and he um I had thoughts you know and he would execute them um and then there were some things that I just did on the day um and he was really open to like allowing his work to be um you know whatever revised by me and ver at various points um uh you know like there were the, and there were certain things that i did um that weren't scripted um that i just felt in the moment like there's a there's a moment where they're going up the hill and it's, they pulled over to the side of the road because the car is having radiator problems or whatever and um it occurred to me to show the audience or give the audience an indication that there was love underneath all of this strife. And um, you see him like do a steering contest with her. And I was like, and I just said to Taylor, I was like, try and get her to smile. Like, just don't, because I didn't say anything to Amber. I was like, you know, open the hood and, you know, the action is opening the hood and pouring in the radiator fluid or whatever. And I was like, just don't do that. Just stop and see if you can get her attention. And then by getting her attention, just see if you can, just see if you can, you know, get into a steering contest with her, make her laugh. And they're such good actors, you know, uh, Amber and Taylor are so available uh, um, for being in the moment. 
uh, that they play, they're always playing in the moment. They're always just experiencing what they're experiencing as characters um, in real time as great actors do. And, um, you know, it just became its own moment. So that was an example of like a little kind of a a little, a bit of warmth that was just kind of created spontaneously. Um, The lake scene was another scene um, that I um, contributed to just because it occurred to me that we did need to show that, uh, again, there was love between these characters. Like, because it's very hard, I, as you know, watching the movie to, to, to stick with it a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if it's hard to stick with it, but it's, um, we're challenging the audience to care about these two people who are uh, in such distress that I was like, it did occur to me, I was like, well, why were these, don't we have to answer the question, um, why were these characters, why were these people ever together ever? Like we can understand whether, we can understand why they maybe stayed too long in the relationship. We can understand how conflict builds inside a relationship and that becomes untenable. But you also have to, I think, um, you know, give a sense um, to the audience that they there, there was a moment sometime in the past, some, maybe when they met where there was really love between them and a, and a, and a knowingness of each other, if that's, and I don't know if that, if I'm, that's a kind of strange way to put it, but uh, a kind of deep knowledge of each other and who they are to each other. And I thought the lake scene kind of started to get at that a little bit, where you just saw that they did have uh, a dynamic and there was a deep love between them, even if it was being buried currently in this, you know, tsunami of, of, of anguish. Um, so in that way, um, you know, I was always, you know, things would emerge and evolve and I would talk to the writer. I would often call him and, you know, he wasn't on set, sadly. He was shooting something else at the time. And so I would call him and say, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? How does this track? How does this arc for the characters? And in what way, you know, can I execute that? And he was always really great about, you know, working that stuff out with me. Sometimes, you know, at mid- well, oftentimes at midnight after a day shoot. And without giving away the end, obviously, um, I really enjoyed the way it ended. Was that always the intention? Because it does feel like, without giving it away, it does feel like it could go either way with that one. Yeah, that was the intention. You know, we took a big swing there. You know, I uh, oftentimes uh, wanted to chicken out and just be like, oh, you know, if we could just have a cutting point, maybe that would be a good idea. Um, but yeah, we we like we might as well try to pull it off. And you know, it was, it was as much you know because from uh, for uh, from our point of view, it was a it's a kind of visually, you know, it's it's you're taking a risk. Um, in the concept, but you're not really taking a, a risk with camera because for, for the obvious reasons, but uh, so really it's on the actors, you know, and their comfort level. And, you know, so we pitched them this idea and they were both really, really, you know, Amber and Taylor were both really excited about the prospect of being able to um, maintain the engine of the scene entirely on their own, you know, with their own, uh, you know, uh, you know, of their, of their own, power because it's not being you know they have no help um from the magic of movie making and so for them to do that was very brave and i thought they did an extraordinary job and obviously the weird is where you're at right now if i may i would like to to go back and ask you how did i mean obviously you you your cv is you you bit of acting writing directing producing there's like you know it's full of all kinds of things how what came first and how did it all come about 
Well, for the record, I'm a terrible actor. So I know there are <laughs> like deep in the past, but they are deep in the past precisely because I recognize very early that I was not a good actor. Um, and um, I was, you know, also fortunately surrounded by really, really good actors. Like part of the way I discovered I wasn't very good was by looking across the stage at the person I was acting with and realized that they were brilliant. So, so I, you know, I had to stop acting pretty quickly and then find out something else to do, you know, and, you know, part of that was, well, I at least can, at least I can recognize what good acting looks like. So maybe I can direct, you know, I, we had a theater company and we're all very young doing the theater company. And so I was like, I was like, well, if I'm not going to be an actor in the theater company, I'm going to have to find something else to do. And um, so I tried my hand at writing and directing and I felt much more comfortable because, you know, excuse me. Because I, I'm both super interested in in trying to figure out how to tell a story um, and also super interested in not ever having to try and perform it because that, that just seems too hard um, for me. And so, yeah, I mean, I've had a pretty eclectic career. I don't think um, I think it's hard at least to have an eclectic, uh, eclectic career. Um, you know, it's important to. You know, like I was branded, uh, it's a terrible term, but I was branded, you know, um, or my brand um, was, it is and has been comedy for the kind of breadth of my career. And, you know, so to do something different was really exciting. Um, I'm happy that, um, you know, it's been a great embrace somewhat. I mean, I think a lot of the reviews have said, and I'm glad we have, I'm really grateful for the reviews we've gotten. A lot of them have said like, oh, who knew that this questionably talented comedy director could actually engage with material with some nuance and sophistication. And I'm like, I'll take it, you know, um, <laughs> I'll take it for sure. So, so yeah, I'm mainly um, a writer and director and I've produced things that I've, I've been a part of coming up with, but I'm not a producer in the traditional sense. Do you see yourself as well um, going back to doing more comedy? Have you really enjoyed doing this sort of drama side of things? Do you think you'll do more of that as well? I mean, I would love to do as much as anyone will let me do, frankly. Um, I do have some comedies um, uh, that we are planning to shoot next year. One comedy in particular, um, which is more of a, you know, like, the broad stuff that I've done, I've really enjoyed. The comedy I'm supposed to do in the spring is more um, the kind of comedy that I love um, in the kind of Jim Brooks tradition where it's a, you know, call it a dramedy or, you know, it's, it's very, very funny, but it's very character driven as opposed to massive, you know, insanity and hijinks driven like hot tub. So it's more, I would say like, I mean, not exactly like high fidelity or like gross point blank has a lot of set pieces, but I would say it's more like high fidelity, the thing I'm doing in the spring than it is like hot tub. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I definitely feel, you know, I so enjoy set pieces. I really do. I really enjoy set pieces. I really enjoy broad comedy. I really enjoy executing like mayhem. Like it just, it just, <laughs> it just pleases me. It's just one of the things I, I just, I guess whether I like it or not, I'm, I'm inspired by it, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm mostly concerned with, you know, having, you know, interesting characters, you know, to tell a story through, because if you don't have that, then you have nothing, including the hijinks, you know, which I've also learned in some of the movies that haven't been as successful. You just have the hijinks without a good story or character. It's of course, you know, worthless for the most part. 
I have to say I'm a huge fan of Hot Time Time Machine. It is one of those films that just, if you ever feel like you need a good laugh, it's it's a great one for just popping on. And also at the time, I remember thinking it was really good. And I'm sure he has done films like this before, but seeing John Cusack in that kind of comedy um, felt like a really nice surprise at the time. Um, yeah, and it's, it's just one of those films that, and, and, you know, bringing people like Chevy Chase and these sort of icons of comedy in, um, with with a project like that, I mean, did you? I mean, it must have been a pretty big budget thing, but did you kind of expect it to be such a hit? I mean, I guess I, I'm not. I I did not expect it to be a hit, but I I never really expect anything to. I, I just I I try and remain, oh, you know, I don't know, open to things being both successful and you know, open. To, I'm always open to things being successful and just pray to God they don't you know fail. Um, mm. So I I was. I can't say I was surprised, but I, I would say I was delighted when it did find some success. Um, um, and, you know, going to John, going back to Johnny for a second, you know, like he's always actually been really great at having a, like a bemused slash darkly humorous view of the world. Like that's kind of his stock and trade. And so in hot tub, it was just everything around him was even more bananas, but he, which made yeah. his kind yeah. of, you know, like, you know, kind of, you know, whatever sardonic view of everything that that more, you know, all the more hilarious, you know, like there's this one moment in the movie, which I just love where where Rob Corddry's like, where does it say in the ass in the asshole handbook that you can fuck up, fuck over your friends whenever you want. And then Johnny, this was he improvised this. Johnny was like, actually, that's that's what it would say if like there was an actual has, asshole handbook, like the first thing it would say would be, you know, fuck over your friends. <laughs> and then they all started agreeing about the fact that Johnny logically is correct. If there was an asshole handbook, it would say fuck up your friends. And and so that was just such a vintage moment where he is mm. just like experiencing like his world, you know, he's he's expressing his worldview, which um he's always been so great at. And that, that's what I think made the movie work, frankly. Mm-hmm. Was there a lot of improvisation on that film or was it kind of, you know, did you have uh, room to play with it? It sounds like say- with that situation, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was probably 50%. Like, you know, when you say it's improvised, it's not like you're improvising everything out of thin air. You know, it's like mm. 50% of it was explored and heightened in the moment in terms of like the comedy and the dyna- and the stuff going on between the characters. But all the actors, you know, like there's this I, maybe a misconception on improv that it's like it's, it's improvised in a way that, um, again, you know, like creates the the what it is uh where there was nothing before and that's just not the case like all the the, the reason the, impro- the the great improvisers um make it work so well is because they know what the scene is and not only do they know what the scene is they t- tend to know where in the story their characters are they tend to know what relationships they have you know like rob cordry was always super mean to clark duke so when you're improvising you know he would always improvise super mean things right and johnny was protective of Clark, right? So then he would improvise things that like push back on, you know, push back on on Rob. So, um, you know, and Craig Robinson is just, you know, the great observer of the world, you know, like, uh, you know, like he, you know, the hot tub t- where he looks at Cameron and says it must be some kind of hot tub time machine. Um, that actually came out of us sitting around and talking about trading places. Craig and I were talking about trading places and how it's not a movie that breaks the fourth wall, right? There's, it's not, I mean, like most movies. And there's that moment where Eddie Murphy, after he's being patronized by these, you know, white racist wall street billionaires, he turns to the camera and 
to let the audience know like how how dumb do these people think I am and he just doesn't take to the camera and so we're like well why don't we do that right why don't we why don't we it's already you know ridiculously self-aware it's called hot tub time machine why don't we just let the audience know in a very small moment that we are aware that they should be and they should be aware that we are aware that this is all completely ridiculous and so of course Craig Robinson caught the case because you know he was the one who had that just you know kind of brilliant deadpan um and perspective on it uh, in that moment so that's why we actually shot it it was a conversation that came out of Craig and I just talking about um you know movies we loved and and moments in movies we loved yeah that's the trailer moment right there as well I can just remember it so clearly the first time I saw it him turning to camera and saying it so it's a, it's a moment you really remember and I never made the sort of link that there is a moment in trading places isn't there that that that's um as you say not what the film's about at all but there is that little nod that little tiny little moment um which makes the audience smile i think but um this i mean obviously this um is a very small blip in your career but i have to ask about it because it's hugely successful um when it comes to you did a couple of episodes of cobra kai which i'm a huge fan of as well i'm a big fan of a lot of your work it turns out um with that with that show um correct me if i'm wrong but i believe you did a couple of episodes in the first season um when it was a youtube show seeing it grow and become what it's become now i mean that must be i mean everyone i mean i love the karate kid and 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 everything else did you have any inkling you know when you were going and doing those episodes of what it would become i mean it's brilliantly written and it's so well realized um and it kind of it doesn't have the right to be as good as it as it is it really is the best it could have ever been um when you first read the script and you and you were going to go and 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 do those apps did you have an inkling that it would become what it became well i mean josh and hayden you know josh heald wrote hot tub time machine right so josh heald is one of the creators of cobra oh, kai right, right right so so when we were shooting hot tub you know you may remember that billy zabka is like the the guy that rob and craig meet in the bar and they have that crazy awful bet right that oh wow yeah 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 so john and hayden and josh were already working on this idea of this inverse reality um you know or this this you know parallel story of telling the the you know the story from the cobra kai perspective and from billy zapka's character's perspective johnny lawrence and so they've been working on it for years and years and years and so i don't and so i'm not sure yeah i don't think you know, I'm sure they would tell you that no one, they didn't expect to have the, you know, the massive success they had, but they were onto something like they understood for sure. Like, you know, the, the, you know, what story they were telling, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and they, you know, their, their, their kind of broader perspective on that world through Joey Lawrence's eyes was just brilliant, you know, mm-hmm. um, and to get, to put that together and get it all to happen was, you know, just such a great, you know, I'm so happy that they did that. It was a, they worked on it for years and it was a huge thing for them to pull off. And so then, you know, when we were, when they were doing the first season, Josh asked me to come in and direct, you know, a few of them. And, um, and, you know, of course I was so happy to do it and we had so much fun. I mean, the first season, especially because when no one really knew what it was going to be, you're shooting the first season. Um, you don't know what's going to become in terms of audience reaction, but we knew what it was when we were shooting and it was just so fun every second. 
because they had kind of cut into this brilliant vein of storytelling. And so the perspective was always fantastic. And every and the actors were great. Everyone kind of knew what it what it was. And so it made, you know, calling action pretty much a, a joy every time you, you know, I did it. It's just so well done. And it is one of those things that um I didn't have particularly high hopes for it when I started watching it. And the minute, like 10 minutes in, I was like, they've nailed this like this is like you can tell it's created by the people that that you know love the original and people that are involved with the original it's like spot on the little kind of uh there's just so many little moments in there that are just absolute joy uh for a fan of the original but going back to um i mean your your list of films and, and credits that you've done what i mean writing directing producing do you have a particular favorite or do you like to kind of have a mixture of the three. Well, again, I don't. I can't say I'm really a producer in the traditional sense. You know, like there are things that um, there are things that I have, you know, you know, thought of and created, and then became a producer of um, mm. because of my interest and passion about a particular you know project or idea. But I'm not a producer like who you know who, you know, is like they, it's their bread and butter is earning a living through like generating um, ideas and projects and then putting the, you know, all the elements together, including, you know, the writer and director and the financing and, and, you know, and the, and the talent. So I, I can't say that I'm really a producer in that sense. So I don't do that much of it unless it's a project that I just happen to have, you know, thought of or, or run across and, and inspired by to do that. Um, I like both writing and directing, you know, they're different things, you know, they, you know, writing, um, well, I mean, I shouldn't say I love writing. It's horrible. It's a horrible, <laughs> it's horrible. It's incredibly difficult and, you know, creates, um, an enormous amount of stress in my life. Yeah. But I mean, you know, there's very little, I, you know, there's very little else I could do as a skill set. So at a very young age, so that's what I ended up doing, um, uh, you know, and one is very isolating writing and the other is very social, you know, directing. And so mm-hmm. they have, they do, they have different, you know, they, they certainly satisfy different parts of my, my personality, you know, like being in a collaborative environment, you know, shooting, um, you know, executing, you know, story and film is, is an amazing thing to be doing. And, and you get to meet and, um, and work with brilliant people. And so then when you're in that environment, there's just nothing better. Um, and then writing, you're home alone, wondering why you chose to be a writer. So <laughs> that's that's really it's true. Hard. Actually, I've not really thought of that before. They are so different when it t- in terms of like being in a dark room on your own typing to being on set, surrounded by everyone asking you questions because you're kind of you know the guy that everyone asks questions to. That is, um, yeah, it's very very different. And I, I mean, we've got to wrap up now. And this has been great. Thank you so much. It's been really interesting. I want to ask, um, if I may, do you have a moment, it can be on set or, you know, at some point in your career, do you have an anecdote or a story um, that you can refer to, perhaps a very embarrassing or uh, humiliating moment that you would share with us? A humiliating moment. (laughs) It doesn't have to be humiliating. um, Live in your podcast forever? Hmm, let's see. (laughs) Yeah, something that's uh, PG-13. Uh, yeah well i only have those sadly um um uh well okay so um when i was doing so our, the first movie i made um as a writer and producer was gross point blank um that Not i made a bad first uh first attempt there i was very fortunate <laughs> and very lucky 
And, you know, you, I had the kind of massively overconfidence of youth, right? Like we had like a total, I had a totally undeserved and unjustified sense, uh, inflated sense of self. And we were casting uh, the villain of Gross Point Blank. And there were all these, you know, like we wanted Alec Baldwin or we wanted, you know, someone else, you know, we, we had all these people and, the, and Dan Aykroyd's name came up. And I was, you know, be, I was being very kind of pretentious, like, oh, well, he was great in Blues Brothers and Trading Places and Saturday Night Live. And he's basically one of the most brilliant, you know, comedic actors of our, of any, I mean, of his generation and any generation. But, you know, his last couple of movies weren't so great. And maybe, you know, maybe it's, he's, it's over for him, you know. And I was kind of like not for Dan Aykroyd. And I'm not actually sure who engineered the meeting. But someone was like, oh, well, Dan wants to meet you. And I'm just the writer also. I'm not the director. I'm not the studio. And I felt like I was being engineered, you know, um, to meet Dan Aykroyd. So it was embarrassing. I'm like, wait, so I have to meet Dan Aykroyd now? And, and you know, and so I was like, I was like, oh, so they're going to make me pass on Dan Aykroyd or something like that. So I was like nervous and I didn't know what, you know, what was happening that I was suddenly in a room with Dan Aykroyd, who's essentially a auditioning for the job he didn't you know read the lines but he's meeting with me because he wants to do this part and his willingness to do that was also just so surreal and um so he comes and he sits down and immediately starts pitching me why he would be perfect for the role and i realized in that moment that that actually that i'm an asshole right that i'm a young idiot who doesn't know anything and what i learned in that moment was that if you're passionate about something then it, then you should never be, you should always be humble. Like you should never ever believe that you are deserving of anything and you should always just pitch your passion and inspiration. And I learned that because he was so unabashedly, he didn't care who I was. He wanted to, he wanted to pitch and he had, and all those ideas were brilliant. Like he wanted to wear that kind of like Mao coat that like, that like uh, collarless blue coat, you know, he starts pitching me how he wanted this kind of vaguely communist like outfit uniform and then he starts pitching me that he doesn't want to ever reload so he has this idea of having like you know a collection of 22 caliber revolvers that he just throws away and then he takes more out so he you know all these kind of brilliant ideas you know when he talked about his kind of like cold warrior background because of his generation and how he comes out of the kind of cold war cia world you know and johnny would be the next generation of that and i was just blown away and i realized that you know i'm a terrible person right? And that he's a genius. Um, and it was a great lesson in, you know, never judging anyone um, for the, what the, for, you know, everyone is just, you know, all artists are ruled by their passion. They, you know, we all want to work and do things that, you know, that make us happy and that we're proud of. And some of those things will end up being things we're not proud of. And some of those things, you know, will be things that, um, you know, we will deeply proud of um, for our, you know, the length of our lives. And so that was just, a, I'm so happy I got that early lesson from Mr. Aykroyd, because I've held it ever since. Like, I don't, I like me, I like, you know, like, I don't judge anyone by what they've done, frankly, I, I want to know what they're interested in doing now. I'm, not, or I'm interested in, in, you know, and I, and same for me, I don't wish to be judged, you know, I want to be given the opportunity um, to to pitch the things that I'm passionate about and and have the opportunity to pursue those th those creative endeavors, you know. And so that, but it was massively humiliating. Like I was like, they they put the punk kid in a room with the great Dan Aykroyd to teach him that he was 
you know, to explicitly teach him that he was being a dick. And so, yes, that was a humiliating, that's my humiliating moment um, and life lesson that I, that I gratefully got early in my career. And I think that is a beautiful way to finish on. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, man. It's been a real pleasure meeting you. I, I look Cheers. forward to seeing your work as well, my man. I haven't. Oh, thank you. Up. I have not seen it yet. If there's something here, I'll ask you. If there's something that you are proud of that you'd want me to watch, what would it be? Oh, I have to go for. I did. Um, I did a film called Northern Soul, which is a very British, low-budget film. Um, and against all odds, that it was a first-time writer. First time director. It was my first lead in a role in a in a film, um, and we were all up in the north of England filming this thing in February, freezing cold in in Liverpool and and Bolton, and um, the film took two and a half years to come out, and we all put our hearts and souls into it. Um, but the film eventually came out, and it got nominated for a BAFTA, and became this in England anyway. Became this film that people now use as a case study as an example of how to sort of make something from nothing. So for me, like that film will always be very close to my heart. Um, so Northern Soul, if you, if, if you do get a chance to watch it, um, it's, I think, I think it's a good one. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's similar. It's, it's, it has, it shares a similarity to the wheel in that respect. That's cool. Um, yeah, that's great. Well, I will watch it and then I'll, I'll reach out to you after thank you man i really appreciate that that's wicked thank you yeah no, awesome man. man um steve thank you again so much no it's my pleasure and i you know i thanks for your interest you know in this in me and in this movie you know that's I, that's really really cool of you i, I really enjoyed the film man as well i thought it was wicked and it, it wasn't something you know as you said before like it's not the kind of thing you've done before and i didn't know what to expect but it really it was a real pleasant surprise and um i, I was just really glad to get to see it so i wish you all the best with it man thanks man i really appreciate it it's great to meet you thank you to our guest steve and thank you to 42 west for making this episode possible his latest movie the wheel is out now support us on patreon for early access to episodes and follow us on tiktok if you enjoy this episode please like and subscribe if you have time write a review it all makes a huge difference thank you and you better come back next month to a life and film!